You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, welcome everyone. I'm very excited to be preaching my very first sermon. Uh, But first, I want to pray as well and ask for the Lord's help because I need it. And then we'll jump into what Psalm 98 has to say about why we worship in song. So pray along with me. Jesus, I, I need your help today. And I want, I want your people to feel your presence and to be drawn to love you and worship you with all their heart. And don't let them see me, but instead look to you. May you work in all of our hearts, my, myself included, as you work in us through your word and bring us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Let me pray all these things in your name. Amen. As some of you may know or may have guessed, I'm a fan of musical theater. There's uh, there's something just there's something different about experiencing Les Misérables or the Phantom of the Opera or Hamilton in the medium of song and dance, which honestly can't be captured in the art form of a play. But in order to appreciate musical theater, one of the first things you have to understand is that it has a language. It has rules or a grammar, if you will, about how the art form is used and what various types of expressions mean. And one of these rules of musical theater is regarding how the actors on stage, how what the actors on stage are doing relates to the emotion that they're attempting to convey. Parts of scenes that have a normal amount of emotion with regular conversations or narrations can be spoken as is with no accompaniment. However, there are times when the emotion gets deeper, when someone has a statement to make, when a character is pouring their heart out. It's in these times when the sentiment gets too great for simply speaking, and they start singing. And then if it goes further, singing doesn't cut it anymore, and they move on to dancing. The, the famous scene from Singing in the Rain is a great example of this progression. So Gene, Kel- Gene Kelly's character has just kissed his love interest goodnight, and his response to her commenting on the heavy rain is this gooey, from where I stand, the sun is shining all over the place. You can see what's going on in his heart. He, he walks out into the downpour and he waves away the cab that's waiting for him. And he starts walking down the sidewalk with this contented little grin on his face. Now, at this point, he could narrate to the audience what's going on in that fluttering little heart of his. Or the director could linger, maybe, on his happy expression for a few seconds before moving on to the next scene. But no. He starts humming. And then he can't contain himself and he just 
bursts out into the famous, I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling. I'm happy again. And he goes on like that for about a verse or so. And then he sings, I'm dancing in the rain. And he just, he stops singing. He can't contain himself. And he's just dancing down the road. His heart is too full for words at that point. It has to be expressed in song and dance. And the music and the movement communicate everything that you need to know about what he's feeling then. And the author of Psalm 98 shows us a similar response here. You experience these wonderful things that the Lord is doing, and you just have to sing. Recitation would just fall flat in trying to convey the joyousness of this moment. Worshiping an infinitely powerful, loving, just, and sovereign God wouldn't be appropriate without something more evocative of his nature. The King of Kings who brings salvation to his people and righteous judgment to the earth deserves more than a commemorative speech. This calls for a song. And on that note, pun very much intended, let's dive into the text today. And it, it starts with an instruction. Sing to the Lord. The word for sing here is an imperative. It expresses a command, wish, or a desire. The psalmist is telling his audience what they should do. When you think about it, this is actually a remarkable thought. The Bible commands us to sing. I know God wants us to worship him, but does he really care how we do it? Well, yeah. God is telling us one way he specifically desires to be worshipped. As a side note, the Greek word from which we derive our English word psalm actually means song. And in fact, these psalms in the Bible were written to be sung. Think of that. The longest book in the entire Bible is composed entirely of songs. And this word sing appears 27 times in the psalms, often as a command. And not only does this command appear in the psalms, but also in the New Testament. Ephesians 5, 18 to 19 says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And Colossians 3.16 has a similar command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And you, as you can see in these passages, we not only are to sing to God, but we are, we are also supposed to address one another in song. But why is this? Why are we even commanded to sing in the first place? And what does it have to do with worship? When, when I tell people that I'm a worship leader, probably the first thing that they think of is that I play some kind of music. And in our modern sensibilities, the, the concept of worship is 
concept of worship is tied to and even equated with music, sometimes inappropriately so. But here at Redemption Hill Church, we, we do call portions of our Sunday celebrations worship in prayer and worship in giving. And we all know that we can be worshiping in any action that we take, really. So not all worship is musical, and neither is all music worshipful. But worship, worship must include our emotions as well as our mind. Worship isn't just a statement of facts. Our hearts have to be in it as well. Worship is a heart attitude. An attitude is directly tied to our emotions, our desires, our affections. Worship is not passionless. It is the opposite of passion. It requires passion. We express, we express worship in our music because, precisely because it helps us either stir up more affections or more adequately express those affections. In other words, music more effectively brings our affections to the surface and brings the heart to express what the mind believes. And the Bible even makes this connection of how music ties into worship. Psalm 147.1 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Now, this verse honestly blows my mind. The infallible word of God says it's good to sing praises to him because it is pleasant. It, it honestly, it seems so obvious, but the author of that psalm thought it needed to be said. From a secular or educational standpoint, uh, most music is meant to be pleasant. I don't know anyone who says that they hate music or dislike singing. Uh, I do know some people who don't like singing in public, but we don't have the phrase singing in the shower for no reason at all. Get people in a room with some decent acoustics by themselves and they're just going to start singing. It's just natural. We'll sing literally anywhere because singing is pleasant. It's cathartic. It's just plain fun. And then, secondly, a song of praise is fitting. It's appropriate. It ties our emotions to the words that we're singing. It tunes our hearts, so to speak. It brings the mind and the soul together. It helps us feel the truth that we know. And while singing is not intended to be the means of encountering God, it is a fitting response to encountering God. It's also a fitting response to God's person and truth because of who God is and what he has done. And this is where we can dig into the scriptural context for this first command. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. 
the words new song show up five other places in the Psalms, as well as once in Isaiah and a couple times in Revelation, but in Greek instead of Hebrew, of course. And every instance is in the context of warfare or expressing God's greatness in some way. The image they evoke is of God as this great warrior, and the concept of salvation is also heavily emphasized in these new songs, showing us that they are written for the warrior king who has saved his people from an enemy. He's not just a warlord looking to oppress. His heart is for his people, and he saves them. So we've got this command, but then the psalmist gives us a reason for this command. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? For he has done marvelous things, or other, some, other, other translations say wonders. The idea behind this is that God has done something awe-inspiring, something unusual and difficult, miraculous even, It is something which should be responded to with wonder. Now, I'm mostly preaching to myself here uh, because I I have a problem with wonder. Anyone who knows anything about me uh, knows that I like critical thinking and I have a hard time feeling. Sometimes when I hear what people think is an amazing fact, uh, I respond with a yeah, I I knew that, or I expected that. To me, if I learn something which makes me, or which already makes sense in my paradigm, I tend to not be amazed by it. Now, I love learning, but with an increase of knowledge, sometimes can come a decrease in wonder. And it really takes effort. It really takes effort on our part to increase our wonder at marveling at who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. We need to pray. I need to pray like the author of Psalm 119.18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And for me, it's not just learning new things about God which causes me to marvel. It's Occasionally, the revisiting of old truths, the meditations on things that I've known for years, the rereading of a piece of scripture that I memorized as a child. The more that we dig in to the underlying principles in God's word and see how connected his actions and his nature are throughout history, the more that we do that, the greater our capacity for marveling. The Lord has done wondrous things, and it's up to us to pursue that wonder. Now, one of these wondrous things that he has done is that he, in verse 2, has made known his salvation and revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And the previous verse verse talks about how he did this. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The terms right hand and holy arm are commonly used references to God's power in battle. So again, this salvation which the psalmist celebrates here is a military one. 
He brings his listeners to remember the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, the destruction of the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, the conquest of the promised land, the deliverance from the Philistines through a boy with a sling and a few stones. And he points to the ultimate reveal of God's salvation and his righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ. This God making himself known to us, becoming flesh and dwelling among us, results in the conquest of death itself. Now, if we jump back and look at the word holy and discover how it fits in, you can see that God's attributes dictate his actions. Because he is holy and powerful, he is worthy and able to bring about his salvation and is capable of himself, of making himself known to the entire world. And as we'll read later, because he is righteous, he is able to execute judgment on the world with equity. So the psalmist continues in verse 3. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. So here we learn several more attributes. First of all, we learn that God remembers. He never changes. He never forgets. He never breaks his promises. What has he remembered? His steadfast love. Now, this concept of steadfast love or chesed is one of God's defining characteristic. This word alone appears 245 times in the Old Testament. You may have also seen it translated loving kindness or loyal love. The root word has a primary meaning of eager and ardent desire. There's a zeal there's a passion behind this kindness. Others have even thought that it means something closer to a loving covenant obligation. God's love is loyal to his people. We don't know much about the relationship between other creatures and God, but we know that God has a unique relationship to those image bearers whom he's chosen and adopted as his own. He's made a covenant, a promise, which, as we just mentioned, he will never forget. His people have a special relationship to him. And I believe this extends even to how we are able to worship him in song. We'll see later how the psalmist uses poetic, metaphorical language to portray nature singing joyful praises to the judge who has brought justice and although uh, they may have their way of declaring the Lord's greatness, they don't sing to God like we do. Despite what all those Christmas songs may tell you, uh, angels, as far as we know, don't actually sing. They're more of an army or a group of heralds. They shout things, but the, the Bible never describes them as actually singing. On the contrary, the humans to which these angels appear often responded to the angel's awe-inspiring message by singing. 
And as we'll read in the rest of the passage, we, God's people, are also meant to respond to his attributes and to his deeds with joyful songs, following the examples put forth here. So the first subject whom the psalmist addresses and whose example we are to follow appears at the end of verse 3. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. The parallelism we see here, this repetition of a phrase with a slight variation, is a common Hebrew poetic technique used to provide emphasis, to amplify what's being expressed in the poem. The psalmist is using, is using this language of poetry to show us this crescendo of excitement. It's, it's like he's saying, okay, we've got to sing, right? Yeah, okay, so we've got these joyous songs. We're going to sing praises. We're going to sing praises with, uh, with the, the lyre. Yes, with the lyre. Throwing some string instruments in there, and that's got a nice sound. So what else we got? We got trumpets, trumpets, yes, and horns. Oh, yes, horns and trumpets and lyre and singing. We are going to make a joyful noise for our king. This guy is getting fired up. So who is supposed to go make this joyful noise that he's so fired up about? Well, all the earth, that's pretty inclusive. Are you from this planet? Well, make a joyful noise. Have you seen the salvation of our God? Make a joyful noise. Have you experienced his goodness in your life? If so, the appropriate response is to break forth into joyous song and sing praises. You may have seen those Geico commercials which say, if you're a mom, you call it the worst time. It's what you do. Or if you taste something bad, you want someone else to share it with you. That's what you do. Well, if you've seen the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to his people, you break out into song. It's what you do. Throw in some instruments while you're at it. You got the lyre, trumpets, horn, maybe a guitar or a piano, slide whistle. I don't care. This is the all-inclusive list here. And while other passages in the Psalms say to play skillfully, which is important, you don't need to be talented to sing with joy. Growing up, my family was close friends with an extraordinarily joyful man named Howard. Now, Howard was over six feet tall and had this booming voice. If you needed someone to tell the kids at the gym to quiet down so that you could pray for the Wednesday night service, um, he, was the, he was the man for you. <laughs> However, Howard was what musicians like to call tone deaf. You could play a note and he wouldn't be able to match it to save his life. And we often sat behind his family in Sunday services, and it was impossible to miss that booming voice singing out for the entire congregation to hear. But the beauty, beautiful thing about it was that he didn't care if he wasn't hitting the notes. It wasn't for the congregation. 
He was worshiping his creator with all his might. And it didn't matter what he sounded like. Seeing the rhapsody on his face, just it made me want to sing too. I was like, I, I want what he has. Howard had experienced the truths of these words, and he did what one should do in those circumstances. He broke forth into boisterous singing. Now that phrase, break forth, we see in verse 4, is a single word in Hebrew, patsach. It's the same word used in Isaiah 55, 12. You may have heard this. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. It carries this idea of releasing a pent-up tension, like when a dam bursts or you're blowing up a balloon bigger and bigger and bigger and it finally pops. It's a sudden outburst because whatever's inside can't be contained. It simply has nowhere else to go and it's got to come out. And so because God has done all these marvelous things, we also must praise him for them. We can't hold in our joy. It wouldn't be right to hold it in. And it wouldn't be adequate to just speak the words. Just like in musical theater, some things are so wonderful, they've just got to be put into song. Uh, let me give you an example of this. I could say to you, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. But if I know anything about how people think, it, you were probably all singing that along with me when I was saying it, right? It's just, it's just better in song format. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. You don't even need to know the words to know that the song is proclaiming something. The tune communicates the tone of the poem better. You hear in the music what's being communicated in the words, let earth receive her king. And what better way to welcome a king than with music? On rare occasions in ancient Rome, a military commander who had led Roman forces to a, an amazing victory, who had completed a successful war campaign abroad, uh, upon their return to Rome, they would be honored with a ceremony called the Roman Triumph. These were extraordinary rituals. They had a parade in which the conqueror would ride in on a four-horse chariot with an unarmed procession of his entire army, along with any captives, and spoils of war displayed for all of Rome to see. He would paint his face red, and he would be decked out in an expensive, all-purple, gold-embroidered toga, which signified his near-divine or near-kingly status. His army would follow behind him, chanting, Hurrah for the triumph! 
And the procession would be accompanied by the playing of music, the strewing of flowers, and clouds of aromatic incense. By the late Republican era, triumphs even included several days of public games and entertainment. This was the event of a lifetime. The conqueror was returning. The Roman triumph inspired such events as Louis XVIII of France's royal entry into Paris, uh, the victory parades in World War II, and parades that you might be familiar with in the home city of the winner of a major sporting event like the Super Bowl or the World Series. Keeping that in mind, in all four Gospels, we find a description of an event that we call today the triumphal entry. And Jesus makes his entrance to Jerusalem to complete his salutary work on earth. It may not have been planned weeks in advance or have an army following behind him, but it was the entry of a victorious king nonetheless. Matthew describes this return to Jerusalem as fulfilling the words of Zechariah 9.9. Sing greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There are a few themes I'd like to accent from this Zechariah passage, which we've already seen in Psalm 98. So first, there's the theme of rejoicing and vocalizing our joy. Why should we rejoice? Our king is coming. And then you see his salvation and his righteousness appear again. And those are mentioned as well. If you remember back in verse 2 of the psalm, it says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The righteous king who brings salvation and justice is Jesus. And now let's go read in Luke 19, 37 to 40, how this prophecy from Zechariah was actually fulfilled. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the mountain of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What this passage tells us is that the entry of a triumphant king is of such importance that it should be, now it it must be celebrated in some way. It would be impossible to restrain the joyous crowds of disciples and it would be improper to do so. So improper that God's, if God's people were restrained from crying out in worship, 
Inanimate objects themselves would be compelled to take up the song to prevent such an impropriety as the sovereign creator going unworshipped. And we see this motif all throughout scripture of the creation pointing us to what we should be doing in worship. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Revelation 5.13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then again, here in Psalm 98, starting in verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. What is fascinating here is that while the initial invitations to sing are actually directed at intelligent creatures who have the capacity to feel and to demonstrate zeal and joy, this actually extends the invitation to inanimate nature to worship this judge king who triumphs and rules in righteousness and equity. You've got everything from the animal kingdom to bodies of water to mounds of dirt, which are instructed to roar, clap their hands, and sing. Why does he call inanimate creatures to do these things? Well, their music is a way of looking forward with hope to what God has ordained in the future. Look again at verse 9. Sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. So there's hope in this statement, and yet nature has a vested interest in God's judgment. So to flesh this concept out more, let's turn to Romans 8, 18 to 23. Paul has been talking to us about how we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ and how our suffering is tied to our eventual glorification. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, 
But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All creation groans, awaiting the second coming just as we are. For the creation itself will be saved from its enslavement to decay. And we look forward to our ultimate salvation from this sin-filled world of corruption and the judgment of the earth. Please turn with me now to Psalm 13, where we're going to see David expressing this inward groaning as he longs for the salvation of the Lord. David cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, your chesed. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David knows all these crappy things are going, around, going on around him and to him. And he seeks the Lord in his distress. Similar to Psalm 98, he points to God's steadfast love and his salvation. And then he responds to those attributes and to his deeds by singing. And we cry out with him, how long? How long until you show yourself to us? How long before you return? How long before you remove the curse of disease and disaster and greed and hatred? We long for the Lord's judgment. We long for his judgment because it means the end of evil and the restoration of creation. And singing is a fitting way of expressing that longing. In these last two verses, we've moved on from the description of the Lord as this warrior king to him as a righteous judge. And again, the psalmist alludes to this unity between God's nature and his deeds. Verse 9, He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's with equity. There's this theme of righteousness which appears again to show that he is just in all of his judgments. And if you remember how God's attributes and actions are tied together, you see that his judgment will be fair because he is righteous. Righteousness is the most important aspect or attribute of a judge. A corrupt judge cannot be fair for he is swayed more by his own interests than he is the truth. And a righteous judge 
not only follows the law, but he also interprets it and applies justice with no partiality. So we, just as we can trust God to be both victorious and loving, we can trust that God the judge is righteous. His verdicts are proper and moral and good. The Lord has made known to the nations that as the warrior king, he has the power to save his people. And as the sovereign judge, he has the righteousness to exercise justice on the world. His infinitely impeccable nature and incomprehensibly wondrous works require a response. The conquering king is parading the salvation of his people for the world to see, and his parade needs some music. And we, as his people, chosen before the foundations of the world, formed in his image, saved by his mighty grace, and sustained by the power of his will, we are uniquely positioned to worship him through our singing. So, whether you're the silver-tongued Gene Kelly, or perhaps my tone-deaf friend Howard, or even about as articulate as a mound of dirt, the appropriate response to God's attributes and his deeds is to break forth into joyous song. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.